Welcome to the Business Done Differently podcast, where we believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite. And that standing out is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Today's guest is John Rossman, former Amazon executive and best-selling author of The Amazon Way and Think Like Amazon. John, I am excited to jam with you on the show today, my friend. Jesse, thank you. I, w- I wish I had a great-looking suit also, but I don't. So. <laughs> For the listeners, they know I am always in this yellow tux because it's always showtime, but I'm fascinated by you. You've been fascinated by Amazon and obviously your experience working with it. We have a lot of people that talk about Amazon, but not many people that actually been in Amazon, in the offices, in the trenches. And you started your book with, what would Jeff do? And started your book talking talking about Jeff Bezos. I'd love just some personal experience working with him because what a true visionary. I'd love to just share that and you're getting into the company and what that looked like. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me, Jesse. Real opportunity to get to talk and, and, and learn and trade stories. So I was at Amazon from early 2002 through late 2005, so just about four years. I got to run two businesses. I launched the marketplace business and I ran enterprise services. And that was really a period of time when Amazon was dealing with a bunch of constraints. It wasn't, it was a fraction of the company it was uh, today, but it was clear we were going to, we were, we were going to make it right. So it was kind of like, is it going to fail or not? So it was clear we were going to succeed, but we really started to get clear about a couple of things. First was that Amazon was really two types of companies. First, we were a retailer and then we we were a technology company that liked to build tools that we would use as well as have others use. So that's kind of the platform strategy notion and everything. And then the other thing that we, we started to get really clear on was like, how do we make decisions? How do we work together? How do we hold each other accountable? How do we, how do we scale so that everything doesn't have to come to the center? At that point, and I still believe it's true today, Jeff's biggest concern was becoming bureaucratic, slowing down, not having as much fun, not having individual accountability and slowing everything to the center. So, so many of the things that we did were in setting up, like, how do we stay fast as a company? A couple of the other things that I got to travel some with Jeff to some of our enterprise clients, and he, he would be asked often, like, you know, Jeff, how do you guys decide, like, what to innovate on, what to invest in, and things like that? And, and one of his orientations that I think is a real thoughtful one was he, he was like, well, I always try to ask myself, like, what are the durable customer needs? Like, what are things that won't change over time? That I And he talked about, like, for Amazon, he goes, I can't imagine a world mm-hmm. where a customer wants higher prices. I can't imagine a world where a customer wants less selection. And I can't imagine a world where a customer wants slower delivery. And so at that point, this is 2004, he goes, almost everything that we invest in is kind of in those three durable customer needs, those three swim lanes, right? And even though one idea may not work, it's going to build to other ideas because we're kind of keeping them aligned according to these three durable customer needs. And I think that's a thoughtful framework to think about for any company. Like what can't you imagine changing relative to your customer and what their true needs are? And so how do you innovate, try to do small things to change, test, evaluate, pivot and go. But if you keep doing them with a, a consistent set of strategies, 
you're likely going to find success and you're going to learn more along. Mm. You know, it's fascinating making me think in, in our world, it's like, can't imagine someone wanting less entertainment or wanting to not be entertained. And you know, that your definition of entertainment can be anything, but no, I want to be bored. I want, I want to have nothing to do. It's the same premise. I want to, I want to, I want to smile less. Yeah, I want to smile less. I want less happiness in my life. I want less fun. And so then the decisions to build are based on that. Now, you talked about being with them a little bit. Are there any, um, you know, real experiences where you just saw him, if you got so doggedly focused on something or into something, you could just tell like, this is Jeff, wow. I was at the receiving end of a few great conversations and everything, right? But one of them, and, and they were always meant, like they were never personal. It was always a, true. Um, yeah. And it was always like, this is about everybody. This isn't just about one individual. And the one I'm thinking about is we were in a conversation. I was running the marketplace business. My technical job was director of merchant integration, but he wanted me to think much bigger than just my job title. And if something was constraining our business, like, John, you don't need to ask for permission to go put pressure and problem solve in areas that may not technically be within your organization or your control, right? And so he gave me this great conversation about not letting the simple things, because, and it, it takes good wisdom to understand what are the inherently hard things in a business versus what are things that really should be simple, but for some reason we allow them to be hard, you know, and everything. And so that was, that was kind of a, a real learning moment about as business leaders, regardless of whether they're in your direct control or not, is you have to recognize what should be simple and what am I allowing to become hard? And, and we have to figure out a way to, to solve for those things because we should only let hard things truly be hard. So as I'm working with my clients now today and, and we're working on like, hey, we got to um, move fast relative to a set of, of tests, experiments, hypotheses that we want to test for new businesses, you know, we're letting things like procurement or HR policy, or tax become the hard things in our business. And I'm, and I'm always talking to my clients, it's like, listen, guys, if in a year from now, we get called to the board and the board goes, well, why didn't this work well? And we go, well, it was because kind of the procurement process slowed us down too much. Guess what? We should be fired, you know, and everything, because we've allowed things that should inherently be simple become the hard things in our business. So in whatever way we got to do it, we got to push through this and we cannot allow those to be the reasons why this fails. Mm. Well, this is, you know, going to the book 50 and one half, 50 and a half ideas uh, from Amazon. You know, I, tw I idea 28, you say, think differently. Asking different questions will result in seeing the customer and the opportunity from a fresh lens in different constraints. So that's part of one of the questions is, is how do we make the hard simple? How do you look at the constraints? Can you give some more examples of that? Because I think that's a starting path for innovation. Yeah, I always, Elon Musk is a really interesting thinker along this line, which is he always thinks about first principles. And what he means by first principles is, what are the theoretical limits of how something works? And let's start with that as, and that as the goal, right? And so think about like delivery capabilities, right? Well, instantaneous is you know, the theoretical limit, right? That's the first principle. It can't go faster than, than immediate. So I always like dealing with like, let's talk about decreasing cycle times. Why is there a cycle time for procurement, for implementation, for adoption? And how do we radically close the cycle times? And if you think about, so one of Amazon's big businesses is AWS, Amazon Web Services, which is the cloud computing division. One of the brilliant advantages of that business versus the traditional 
traditional business model of buying hardware, buying software, having it set up and all that is that the cycle time, the procurement cycle time goes from months and weeks to what it takes you to sign up for a website, right? Put it in, put it in a corporate per, uh, credit card. And it's that type of flexibility and really asking a question of, well, how would we make the cycle time instead of, you know, whatever it is today, two weeks, how would we make it a uh, 10 minutes? And when you, when you pose it as that type of question, then you rethink all of the fundamental assumptions relative to the capability. 10 minutes for the customer. How, how do you make yeah, it? 10 minutes for the customer. Exactly. From the Everything's customer. the customer perspective. Everything starts with a customer. And so how do you make it easier? That's the constraint. Yeah, the customer never wants a lead time, right? That's never to their advantage. Uh, and everything. Now they may want control. It's like, okay, I don't want it me. I want it on this specific date. Well, that's different than having a mandated lead time relative to something. So that's so smart. So in the starting point for innovation, I want to get there. Obviously, you're asking the right questions, but you're this customer obsession that that obviously Amazon is a, uh, focuses on relentlessly. Can you share some of the ideas from the book on, I mean, again, the name of our company, John, I don't even know this, is Fans First Entertainment. Right? So right. actually, like it's in the name of our company. How did that happen in Amazon? How do you teach that to come up with these innovative ideas? Well, yeah, so gr- great topic, big topic and everything. And, and Amazon has 14 leadership principles. The first First is customer obsession, and it reads, leaders start with the customer and work backwards. They work vigorously to earn and keep customer trust. And while they pay attention to competitors, they obsess about customers. And they use that word obsession purposely because it's a very it's a pungent word, right? Like, you know, when you're around somebody like yourself, who's obsessed about something because they stand out, they come across as weird and disoriented. (laughs) And that's exactly the point, which, and Amazon uses that word obsession to be the reason, the excuse for why they're willing to struggle with really hard things to own the customer experience. And they give themselves latitude along that customer experience. And so it's not just about your product or your service. It's about the entire customer experience relative to your product or your experience. So, you know, thinking back to retail, right? What most retailers would say is, well, I own like what the product is and the quality of the product and everything, but somebody else delivers it somebody else disposes of it, somebody else, whatever it is, provides training around it or something like that. Like, I don't own that. At Amazon, our perspective was dramatically different. It's like, no, we own everything about the customer experience, whether we drive it or are accountable for it directly today or not. It is our customer and it is our brand. And we have to innovate on behalf of them in the broader sense of that customer experience. And so that's what's led Amazon into driving change in so many industries like logistics, like service, is because it's like, hey, it doesn't matter that we aren't that we don't drive the trucks today, our customers are counting on us to be precise, to be faster, to be more nimble relative to logistics. That's part of the customer experience. Amazon has dramatically been the force of changing logistics and last mile delivery capability. So that's one example. I think the other one that that we can tee on is that I believe the future of great customer experiences are experiences that are integrated across multiple products 
and hence across multiple enterprises, right? So if you think about a company like Uber or Lyft, 10 years ago, if I was in New York and I was at a restaurant, I didn't know the address, it was dark out, I had to get to my hotel, I, I knew the name, but I didn't know the address, I would have to figure out like, how do I get a hold of a taxi? How do I tell them the address I'm at? How do I tell them the address of the hotel? And then I have to give them my credit card, right? The beauty of a business like Uber or Lyft is that with my phone, all I have to do is say, I need a Lyft to XY Hotel. All of that experience, payments, location, discovery, driver allocation, all that stuff is done in an integrated manner for me. And that is truly the future of great customer experiences. So what that means for organizations is we all have to become good at the things that create cross-enterprise customer experiences. So some of those things are technical things. So things like integration and API that allows for data and processes to go across enterprises in real-time capability. But there's also just business model and legal model and data sharing models that we have to become good at if we want to create customer experiences that go across multiple organizations. It's almost looking at like the all-inclusive experience. So you're literally thinking of it from the beginning to end. How do you put it all into one simple step and make it easy? And it's been tough for us to think about even their whole day, fans coming to the game. But our ticket experience corner said, hey, well, we can still impact when they come to the game by sending a playlist of music to get them fired up as they're driving and start integrating those pieces while they're not even here, but you prime them for the experience. And I think, how do you go that full length to get them into the mode? So, you know, you could keep broadening your definition of what the customer experience is. And what's the, what's the friction of a family getting or a couple getting to go to a game? Maybe it's in driving or maybe it's driving home from the game, right? I've, I've enjoyed the game a lot. I probably shouldn't be driving. How do I get home? Well, but then take it one step further. Okay, you get me home, but then how do I get my car that's at the ballpark back to my house, you know, and everything, right? Like you could keep expanding what you mean by that customer experience and so that you reduce the friction and you increase the attractiveness of yeah, I get to go to a game versus all my other options out there. I love that. You know, it is looking at every possible friction point. And we've learned so much from from reading your book and hearing all these topics because the reality is like inconvenience fees that people have that they pay. I call, you know, we eliminate all those. You don't have any extra fees, extra taxes. This sh- I mean, we do free shipping as well. We don't charge a prime. We just eat it. Right. But again, because that's what people have been used to. That's the expectation that Amazon has put on us. And I think it's so important to look at those friction points. You're right. Even right after they experience you and even before they experience you, not just they came into your building. And I think one great point you, you talked about was use metrics that measure the customer experience. And you talk about actually not just looking at the metrics that matter to you, use the metrics that measure the experience. Can you give some examples of how that was integrated in uh, Amazon? Yeah, so a good a good example, and it's it's kind of a nuanced example, but I think it proves the points was, so back in the early 2000s, uh, when not everybody had incredible Wi-Fi and broadband to their house and everything, customers were, were transitioning a lot of customers still had dial-up modems. Some customers had some early version of cable internet to their house and everything, right? And so, so the website reacted differently depending upon the quality of the service, the internet service provider, the ISP mm-hmm. that, a, that a customer had, right? And so we were getting, the merchants program was putting a lot of new pr- 
product out there, a lot of new customers, a lot of new experiences. We were asked like, hey, you know, how do we problem solve for customers and their website experience? Well, at first, the engineering team was like, hey, we can only do so much. We can only kind of provide to the ISP, to the internet service provider. It's up to them, like actually what the in-home speed is and the quality mm-hmm. is and everything. And we had a leader at Amazon, Jason Kyle, who was like, no we're going to measure what we call to the glass customer experience, right? So we were measuring all the way to the computer screen of what that customer experience was. And then we worked with different ISPs to show them like, well, actually, you know, you're having some problems. Could you improve this? We flexed a little bit with some of the ISPs to get them improved. And we actually innovated a website technique where we would sense the quality of the ISP and we would deliver the web page in a different way if you were a low quality ISP versus a high quality ISP. So we actually figured out some ways to to tailor how data, how the website was being delivered to customers based on the quality of the ISP that they were having, right? We didn't have that capability before. So again, kind of a nuanced experience, but it came from measuring the entire customer experience, not just the part that we were responsible for. Yeah. Everyone measures how much revenue they're making, but are they measuring what was the waiting time? How long until they got a call back? You know, how many rings did they answer? What are those things? How long did it take to park at your place? How long did it take to get inside your place? Those metrics. And and one of the really important aspects of measuring is you have to be careful of measuring the means, right? And so the mean, the averages, right? Your average may be good, but you still have a set of customers who are getting really, who are getting really bad customer experiences. And so we always would both measure the means and the averages, but also put in place what we call the service level agreement, right? An SLA. And the SLA had to be a high bar SLA. And and by high bar, what we meant was that typically 99.5% of customers would get at least what the SLA measurement was. So that only a small fraction. And so we hold held ourselves accountable, not to the average customer experience, but to the worst customer yeah. experience. So only a fraction of customers were getting a bad customer experience. That's a totally different way of using metrics to to deliver a customer experience than if I just am measuring the average of what the customer experience is. So, so that's where you have to be very thoughtful in how you measure things appropriate. Mm. You always have to be thinking about a balanced scorecard, right? Yeah. Cost, quality, speed, throughput, plus at the end of the day, your financial metrics, right? But financial metrics are are always looking backwards metrics. They're they're tough to operationalize. You really got to think about, you know, your your balance scorecard of operational metrics, including the real customer experience in a in a longitudinal or in a horizontal manner. I love it. You know, it just came to me like, you know, we, we always talk about what's the perfect customer experience. But what if we got together as a group and say, all right, what's the worst possible experience someone could have coming to our game, coming to the ballpark? What's the worst experience? Because some people, hopefully no one's having that. But if it's something that could get close to that, fix it. And I think I just, you know, obviously in innovation, you talk about innovation by reducing friction. Amazon attacks friction. I mean, they attack it. When you talk about everyday shipping, the, the customer reviews that are authentic, the multiple offers for customers to buy, the questions, I mean, the question that Amazon's asking is, how do you make buying, how do you make the whole process just easier? I think that's one type of question. One type not, of question. Not solely the type yeah. of, of, of question, but yes, that in, in a lot of small little ways of like, what are the little points of friction? So a good example is Amazon continues today to, as they have done for a long, long time, on innovating in customer returns, which which is kind of an odd thing to innovate on, right? Why do I want to make it easier for my customer 
to return a product. So back in, in the early days of e-commerce, returning products was painful, was friction, was cost you money, right? Com- company, a lot of companies made it really hard because they didn't want returns. Amazon took a very long-term view on this. They realized if a customer trusts that it's easier to return a product for any reason, if it's easier to return a product, guess what a customer is going to do over a long period of time? They're going to buy more product, right? And so Amazon continues to innovate on customer returns. Sometimes big things, sometimes small little things, right? Like my favorite new feature over the holidays was I could return any Amazon purchase, including third-party products. I could return any Amazon purchase to an Amazon uh, bookstore or to a Whole Foods uh, location, right? Just made it that much easier to return product. I didn't even have to have put it in a box or have the packing slip. All I needed to do was show a QR code. It, the service person scans it. They take the item. You're done, you know, and everything, right? That's the type of relentless obsession around customer-driven friction that then gives them ideas like, okay, how do we go even bigger? How do we leapfrog even bigger? But when that's really the operational excellence kind of genes or techniques in a company of getting everyday things right. And that has tremendous benefit in your cost, quality, speed, effectiveness for today. But it's also kind of like, that's the fitness you need to build in order to then have the big ideas that really create a gap in innovation, right? And a gap in competitive capability. So if you stress the details every day, it's going to give you the fitness, the insights in order to make big jumps in the future. Yeah, I'm excited to get to the, the big innovations, but it got me thinking in sense, we actually t- try to create a product where our customers feel like they're taking advantage of us. So when we look at what, like, so when we look at our, our all-inclusive food, people are like, how do you do that for $18 in the ticket? Includes everything. You must be, you know, wearing it. Like, that's a good thing. And with Amazon, if you can literally return everything, make it easier, I mean, you feel like you could take advantage of Amazon if you wanted to. Well, Bezos has a quote that's kind of along that line. And he goes, I want, he goes, I want somebody to feel irresponsible to not be a prime member. <laughs> like, like, and, and when you think about it, like for whatever it is, $109 a year or whatever, like all this stuff you get as a prime member, that's his, he's, he's got the same mentality you do, which is I want it to be irresponsible for somebody to not be a prime member. That's a completely different type of question that yes. you're asking yourself that leads you to different insights and different strategies. And that's exactly the point of like, why the types of questions we ask mm. really set the the fabric, the framework for how we think about what our innovation potential is. Yeah. You talk about uh, creating a dreamy business a little bit, the dreamy business, that one that customers love it. Can you define that? Because I think this is what we're describing is a dreamy business. Yeah. So dreamy businesses have a few different um, aspects to them, right? First of all, a dreamy business has to be a business that has some appropriate sense of scale to it, right? It's cool to innovate, but if there's actually no market there, like that's a limiting factor. So dreamy businesses have, have an incredible total addressable market, right? A, a total, a TAM, right? Yes. The second thing a dreamy business has is it, is it kind of sucks today, right? Like it's not very good today, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a ton of opportunity and there's high margins in it. And so if you can come to a big market that has a ton of customer friction and a, cu- a ton of, of margin in it, well, that's a business that's ripe 
for innovation and disruption, right? It has all the aspects, the ingredients you need. That's why I go, you know, to me, retail is a tough business. It, it to me is not a dreamy category because while it's big in size, in general, retailers have really adjusted their game and, and it's a low margin business typically, right? Okay. All that like it's friction fulfilled. It's a bad customer experience. Lots of tradition, lots of uh, a traditional business models to it, big margins, and there's opportunity for innovators in it. I love it. All right. So let's, let's, let's get inside Amazon a little bit. Let's talk about some of the games and the awards that they create for innovation. I mean, it's something we've really stressed that we do idea paloozas here where we get the whole team together. We brainstorm, we solve problems and we celebrate. It's a lot of fun, but we don't have awards to celebrate invention. It sounds like that was just one of the biggest things that was celebrated at Amazon. Yeah. So I think Amazon really set a culture that doing the right thing is going to be recognized, but it's not, but it's more of a, of a peer recognition and uh, gaining prestige that is about a big cash reward. So the, the two rewards that, that um, I remember were, one was called the Just Do It Award. And the Just Do It Award was for somebody who saw a problem and fixed the problem without asking for permission, right? So it could be, it could be somebody in a fulfillment center that saw a safety issue and they just, they just addressed the safety issue. Or it could be you know, somebody on the technology team that saw a problem and just did it. And the reward for that was an um, old Nike sneaker that had been dipped in bronze. <laughs> that, was, that was the reward, the Just Do It Award, right? But you got brought up on stage in front of the employee all hands and got recognized, you know, and everything. And then the other reward was for, for being an inventor, actually being uh, contributing to a patent and being named on a patent, right? So Amazon has a, a very valuable uh, patent portfolio, but the complete employee reward is you get a, a little puzzle piece plastic uh, that says, thanks for being an Amazon uh, inventor, uh, Jeff Bezos. So, and it's not even signed by Jeff, right? Like it's plastic. And on the internal phone tool where you go to find an employee, your, your name next to it has this little puzzle icon telling all of your peers like, hey, I'm an inventor, you know, and everything, right? And so they've completely gamified being an inventor that it's, that it's prestigious. And, but the prestige is just peer prestige. It's not a monetary prestige. And so the lesson to take from it is if you want your organization to be more creative, to have higher accountability, to be more inventive, find a sincere and long-term consistent way of recognizing that behavior it has to be authentic and, and, and it truly has to like be earned, right? You can't just give it away. Well, this person deserves one because they've been here a long time. Like that doesn't do it, right? That's a different type of a reward. If you do that consistently, that's the type of support mechanism that helps create this culture of innovation or, or, or growth or creativity that you, that you want, right? The, the book is Think Like Amazon, 50 and a half ideas. There's no one thing yes. you can do to, to, have, to have this incredible um, uh, systematic approach for growth and innovation, right? There's lots of little things that, that you need to do. And the real wisdom is, in, well, in a certain circumstance, which are the two or three things that we need to use right now, right? And I get asked all the time, like, John, like, you know, where do I start? And while I resist the notion of that question, right? Like there is no one thing to do. The one thing I would, I, I always start with is like, 
how do we measure things on a daily basis, right? Like that is the, that data is the truth, right? And if we can start with better metrics and then how we use those metrics to gain insights and to take action, I can never lose with that question, right? Nobody ever does their metrics to the extent that they can do it. Even Amazon is always challenging their metrics. They're always adding to their metrics. We have this whole mentality that your metrics are never done. And when I work with clients, they go, okay, like, let's spend a couple of weeks on our metrics and then we're done with it. We're moving on. It's like, no, 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 no. Let's spend a couple of weeks on our metrics. And then we've started on our metrics and then we continue, but we're always asking ourselves, like, how do we improve our metrics? Because the metrics are the things that they allow us to hold each other more accountable. They help us fight through our biases, which is just our filters for how we process information. It helps us be more accountable as a team and as individuals. And so metrics are one of the, I think, um, just key things that every organization always needs more. I love it. And I think it's important. I want to get really practical here. I'm actually going to get personal here. A baseball team. And now we don't consider ourselves a baseball team. We consider ourselves entertainment business, what metrics would you, Jeff, or any Amazon look at for a baseball team or for what we're doing to try to innovate? I always think that like adoption is always a, a key notion within within a business, right? And adoption means not just a customer buying, but a customer actually getting value out of the product. So that maybe two things I would think about is is like how many fans are staying to the end of the game versus leaving early. Like that might be an interesting way because because what you probably measure is just kind of to the gate attendance, right? Or maybe it's not even to that. Maybe it's just ticket sales, right? Which doesn't even mean they come in the door, right? And so I would want to understand abandonment all the way through the customer experience because you're, you're delivering more value on essentially a fixed cost if you get customers to stay the entire game. So that would be one thing. And then the other thing I think is, is just both loyalty. So fans that continue to come as well as then how do I get to the new fan, right? And so those are different types of metrics of how do I create loyalty and get recurring revenue and recurring fan attendance versus how do I get adoption into a new set of of fans. And so those would be some of the metrics I might be thinking about in your business. I'm blown away because I believe so many teams aren't thinking about that first question. And that was our last idea of Palooza. We said, so we're fortunate we sell out every game. We have a wait list, but there's still a problem. You talk about friction points. All right. It's still too long. It's still too long. And we know right now that less than uh, 7% of our revenue total comes after nine o'clock at night. And what that shows is that so many fans are leaving and they're done. And it's fascinating. And so the problem we're trying to think is a what to keep fans later and so we are going to try out bananas after dark a whole kind of like experience when the lights turn off at the end of the game but then maybe that's not the right answer maybe the right answer is that fans just want a faster game that and the other thing uh, that i'd be thinking about just thinking about myself is yeah. like what i eat and drink changes it, for me it's a little early like at, yeah. at, at, at 7 p.m you know and everything right yeah. and so so there's probably a certain set of stuff that i'm attracted to up to seven but then kind of after that as a parent like hey there's a different set of, of needs you know and everything right so so does, does your product need to shift a little bit later in the game versus the early parts of the game? But I think all of those are opportunities for you to think about. Yeah, well, I think it's a great thing with Amazon. How much was speed discussed? Because I think, you know, I've just come into this. Speed is everything and convenience. And I know that's not one of the three things that won't change, but people want things faster. They want it easier. They want it on their own terms. Was that like every conversation? How do we make it faster for people? But always at quality and at yes. a cost basis, right? Yes. And so you, you have these constraints, right? Like yes. it just can't be speed at any price or speed at any quality. It has to be speed with cost and with quality in place. And those, those constraints are what force 
course, the breakthrough innovations that you need to have, right? In relative terms, it's easy to optimize on one type of metric. What's difficult to do is drive improvement in a metric while maintaining parity or improvement in other balancing metrics, right? Well, you look at Alexa now and it's like someone must have said, hey, wouldn't you be faster if we just said play this, do this, as opposed to actually type this or write this? That was one of those innovations. And I think the origin story of Alexa is really interesting, right? So Amazon had a massive failure called the Amazon Fire Phone, right? I, not everybody maybe remembers that, but Amazon designed and built their own smartphone and it was a complete failure, like just dead on arrival type of failure, you know, and everything, right? But from that failure, core elements, both technology elements, but also team capability elements came out of the Fire Phone and that seeded the Echo Alexa capability. If they hadn't failed at the Fire Phone, they wouldn't have gotten to the Alexa. But it was really Jeff just leaning into that type of trial failure and saying, great, that wasn't it yet, but here's the next step and everything, right? And, and, yeah. and not, not many companies have the type of, of uh, conviction to double down off $600 million of inventory in iPhones or, yeah. or in Fire Phones, right? Well, well he's, saying, he's saying what's going to be the next billion-dollar failure. I mean, he's talking about billion-dollar failures because he, he wants yes. that think big idea. It's absolutely brilliant. I want to just quickly talk about the counterintuitive way of working fast but also coming up with ideas by doing this six-page narrative that you share and the future press release. I love that because of, of the, the thought behind it, but can you share a little bit about that and how it helped? Were you, were you ever a part of one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wrote many narratives, got frustrated by them, you know, and everything. So, so the basic essence of it is instead of using PowerPoint to explain concepts, proposals, projects, we would write them out. And while that sounds like a subtle change, it's like it's absolute game changer because when you have to write things out to to a specific audience for a specific purpose with full paragraphs, full sentences, that it flows and that it makes sense and that and a reader could take this document without talking to you, read it and understand what you're proposing. The level of critical thinking that a person or a team has to put in place to prepare the memo just makes their thinking, they're going to think about stuff, they're going to figure things out that they would have never figured out before. And then the second big benefit is, is that the groups who have to read these, they actually have to have to pay more attention. Like it's harder to read a good memo than it is to have somebody present something to you, right? Did, yeah. And so it, you get double the benefit. So the, the basic techniques are, are in the book idea. I think it's 43, a narrative about narratives and idea 44, a uh, future press release is about this technique of, of being writers. And it's, it's upfront before you do anything, you, I call it, it's a go slow to go fast move, right? If we, if we spend the time to force ourselves to articulate, like, what do we envision the future customer experience being? What are the hard things we need to solve? How are we going to organize around this? How are we going to measure it? How do we do it in as incremental and agile manner as possible? Like all those different facets that you could think through, then you're going to have two big benefits. First is you're going to be more clear about what are we saying yes to versus what are we saying no to? And that's a big problem in most big enterprises, which is they kind of like let a lot of things go along. And so, so many things are under-resourced, under attention. And so all of them suffer versus having a couple of big winners. 
The second big benefit is that when you do decide to go forward with an implementation or test phase, we understand the project or the idea so much better Mm -hmm. that we have lower risk, we proceed faster on it, everybody's better prepared for it. So that's really the notion behind kind of the Amazon calls this start with a customer and work backwards. All these narratives, all these future press releases are written from the starting with the point of view of the customer, but then transition to like, well, what do we need to do or contemplate or decide on or or figure out or innovate on in order to achieve this vision. Mm. So like for, if we're looking at a new division or a new opportunity, like we see Little League participation is declining dramatically and looking at an opportunity with kids, maybe the game is not as fun, not as cool, not as relevant. We would write a narrative on all the challenges, the problems from the kid and the parent perspective, everything that they're going through, why they're not playing it. And then the next, that would be a future press release a year in advance on what this did to change the landscape of Little League youth baseball, etc. Is that the right framework? That is. And maybe there's nine different versions of that, right? And and having the discipline to do that for nine different potential ways that you could solve business models. Yeah. Business model, like, man, that's that's work. And at the end of the day, you just pick one, right? But you've studied that and considered that so much more deeply. In in general, like that's cheap investment, right? Versus you deciding to go forward with one and then figure out, well, that wasn't quite the right It's a, it's a time investment. And if you want to do it right, you're going to put the time in any, anyway. So yeah. how does that lead it to see? This is what's so fascinating that people should do because we're at a spot where, where John just, I mean, we can't sell any more tickets. Our business for the first point hasn't grown and we need to figure out how do we spread this in a different that, that in a baseball season is only part of the year, right? Yes. Like two and a half. And and that'd be the thing you might be thinking about. You're probably way ahead of me on this and everything is like, if we define ourselves as an entertainment business, that's a year round need. Baseball is one aspect of that entertainment brand. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I love it. Uh, build off of that? How do you transcend that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, those are the questions that we're asking, but you talk about the next step too, which I love, and I, I know we're coming to an end here, but write the user manual. I think this is like, no one thinks like this. It, it's brilliant. Tell me about what the user manual looks like and how this is. So writing, this is, you've written the narrative, you've written the future press release, then you write the user manual, right? And so it might be in your type of business, like it might be for a stadium operator or, you know, some other role there in our business it was oftentimes for software developers. Like, how would you use this tool that we were building for you before you built or designed anything, right? Is it how um, the customer uses it or is it how Yeah, the- exactly. It's how the customer, how the customer, whoever your customer is uh, and everything, right? And by forcing yourself to write out, like, here's how the user would use this, all you're doing is is identifying, well, this is the stuff I understand well, and this is the stuff I don't understand well at this point those are kind of the risks in your project, right? So it's a, it's a way of helping to identify what do we understand well versus what don't we understand well. And if you understand what you don't understand, then you can bring those things forward into a project. Don't leave them towards the end. Address your risks early and you'll have less surprises in your projects. Is the goal with the user manual eventually, like I think what, what made Apple great or what's made Apple great is you don't need a user manual. You know, they focused on making it. So is it to write it down and then look at this? How do we simplify this that we don't even need these tools? That, that's one of the benefits is how do you make it simpler and simpler for the user, right? Oh, the user manual shouldn't be this tough, you know, and everything, right? But the, but the other big benefit is you're just, you understand stuff so much better before you proceed on it, including how do we make it simpler for the customer so that the ultimate is there is no user manual. So is this like, if you have a, if you have a dentist, a dental office, you're trying to improve the experience or do something different, write the user manual 
manual on how to go to the dentist. Yeah, yeah, that could be it. Or, or it could be hygienist is a key part of that experience. And, we're, and so we're going to improve the customer experience by reinventing how the hygienist does their job. Let's write the user manual, the operating procedure manual for hygienists. And if we just write that out, you're going to see like, this is all the screwed up, sub-optimized, not just customer unfriendly, but hygienist unfriendly things that we have going on. Oh man, we need to rethink that. Like that helps you understand stuff better before you proceed on it. I love it. it you know, it's such, it's just a mindset shift. When you think of everything in this different way, this customer obsessed and the reducing friction, it's so much easier to think of what you're going to do next. And it's so tough to say, hey, and this- challenge the status quo, right? Oh, Which is God. really your entire, your entire mantra. We're, you know, we're trying to because baseball's dying. It's it's a traditional right. game that's dying. And so I know a lot of the listeners, they always say, all right, Jeff, we get deep, we get macro. And, and I know it's a mindset shift, but is there a quick win that you would give anyone that they can like, hey, after this, you know what, I'm going to do this to help my company think like Amazon, be more innovative. Well, I've already given you one, which is just think through your metrics, especially how you measure uh, customer experiences. But th- the second win I would take is is this, which is I ask when I go out and talk to audiences, uh, I'll always ask like, hey, who here believes that innovation and being more creative, rethinking the customer experience is critical for your company over the next five or 10 years? 90% of the audience will raise their hand. And then I go, how many of you have a deliberate technique or process in how you're going about your innovation? Almost no one will raise their hand, right? And so, so I, I call that working in the future. You have to think about how am I going to put more time and be deliberate and be systematic and have a technique and a process in how I work in the future. Otherwise, your innovation is just an accident, right? Like you're just going to stumble into it. It's not going to be systematic, right? It's not going to be driven by the inputs that you put into it. And so the second takeaway I would have is like, if you want to innovate, you got to have a technique to it. And this is this is a book, Think Like Amazon is a technique book. It's like, how do we do these things? Because we all recognize that we need innovation, but we don't know exactly like, how do I do it actually? Mm, I love it. All right. Can I give you one uh, industry potentially and maybe an idea on how you could innovate? Have a little fun here, a little showdown. Okay. This you, can, you can throw one at me too. If you want to make it a showdown, we can have fun. No, All right. No, let's do it. All right. A gas station. Why do I have to go? Right? Like, why do I go to a gas station and, and everything, right? Like, why keep a uh, to me? That would be uh, one thing I would think about relative to a gas station. The, se- the second thing is, and this really relates to the, we're recording this um, when the COVID-19 uh, yeah. is major concern. It's just, think about the hygiene at a gas station, right? Mm. You want to improve the customer experience, make it trustworthy for a mom to go there and know, like, I'm not picking up strange stuff on my hands from pumping gas in my car. Like, that's an easy win, you know, and everything, right? I love it. I love it. It's great. You know, the question, you know, you know, what if I didn't have to go to a gas station? What if I didn't have to? So a big friction boys, oh, I got to go get gas. Whenever right. you look at something as a potential chore, there's an innovation opportunity there, which I love. Right. All right. I'll give you a quick, uh, I've been grilling you for a while. You're now the host of Business Done Differently. You can ask me one question. It's flipped the script. <laughs> what would your recommendations be to MLB to improve the game? We only have a few minutes. So that would, that's a, a full, <laughs> it's a full conversation. That's a big question. No, again, you look. here's the friction points. What's happened with baseball right now, the games are getting longer. Players aren't connecting with the fans as much. So we've tried to break down the barriers. How do you, I mean, our players go in the crowd. They actually give roses to little girls. They go on dates with fans. They interact. There's less celebration. There's too much traditionalist. If you celebrate, you get hit, you get hurt. It's right. a different game. Right. 
So again, for MLB, how do you break down the walls between the players? Make it fun. How do you make the game much more shorter and condensed? If you watch a Major League Baseball game, look into the crowd and look at how many people are actually watching the game. It's less than half. It's right. less than half. 50% are looking down. That's not a good product. So how do you make it where you can't stop watching? So we've been experimenting with some games where you can actually play nine innings in less than 90 minutes where you can't take your eyes off it. Wow. That's, that's We've had games like that where we want to do that because where it's like, what would make the game that you don't want to go get a soda? You don't want to go get... You want to watch it so much. Yeah. yeah, you may lose revenue there in a little bit, but isn't that making a better experience and a better product? So that's a win. And I, I think it truly is an example where tradition, because we've always done things this way, is really what's holding them back from doing that, everything, yes. right? Like the steps, the solutions are pretty well understood, but it's tradition that holds us back. And, and that's the same in so many businesses. It's because we've always done things this way that's part of what holds us back from, from really innovating. I love it. You know, you, we started with what would Jeff do? Then you said, what would you do? But then I think that's a question. What would you do to change the industry that either you're in? What would you do? What if there's no barriers to make it a better experience? But I do love questions. We've asked a lot today. So question time. If you want better answers in business, you got to ask better questions. What's another great question that you may be asking right now with your clients or anyone you're working with? What's the the silly upstart idea that's going on today that if it were successful in five or 10 years would completely change the nature of the environment that you operate in, right? So in financial services and logistics, like one of the silly ideas going on out there is around kind of blockchain and smart contracts and um, more trustworthy, transparent transactions, right? A lot of these things are, have major challenges and issues to them. But if you, but if you ask the question, if it were, if these things got solved for, or under what conditions, if these things got solved for, how would that change business? Well, then that's a different perspective, right? So think about. 10 years ago in mobile commerce, right? Back then, nobody nobody was was envisioning like, well, mobile commerce, the cell phone coverage, the cells themselves, the, the cell phones are going to get better. So assume that what kind of sucks today isn't going to suck as much. Then what do you need to be doing? What are the opportunities today to prepare and take advantage of that? Versus like, ah, oh, man, customers will never adopt phones. They they kind of don't work that well, you know, and everything, right? That's a, that's an example of we're taking something that isn't working well today, but if it did work, would fundamentally change things. That helps you think about things differently and what your long term potential is. I love it. I, you know, very positive person, but sometimes looking at, hey, what sucks right now that we can make better? I think is a simple way of looking at it. All right, or, or, or those upstart ideas that seem silly today that. Like if they worked, those would change the nature of our business. Yeah. Instead of, instead of what if it doesn't work, what if it works? I think is a great right. question. All right. Final one here. Um, if you were to give advice to someone on how to stand out in business or in life, what would you tell them? Be an independent thinker. It's what I'm always like, I'm fortunate. I got two great boys and I've had a great partner, my wife in, in raising them. And I think if there's one thing that we've tried to install in them, it's like be an independent thinker. Like, like it's the independent thinkers that change the world. It's not, it, you want to listen to others and everything, right? But evaluate everything based on the facts of the situation versus what all the traditionalists are saying. And I think that will lead you to better outcomes and, and a better life, honestly. 
I love it. What a great way to end. Go out and think differently. The book is Think Like Amazon. I have about, if you can look here, about almost half the pages are earmarked. Uh, it was outstanding. Made me think differently and challenge what we're doing. So, John, I just thank you so much for being on the show and sharing some of your wisdom, my friend. Jesse, anytime. This was, this was really great. One of the better conversations I've had. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered on this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.